0: sure you've all heard the phrase what goes around comes around everyone gets what they deserve you know humanity in general has this concept that that's what happens in life you know people will say that not necessarily from any religious background there's this general idea going around in society today that ultimately people will get what's coming to them positively and negatively this is called karma that if you're good in this life you get good, you're bad in this life, you get bad. And karma is at the very basic root of all the religions out there, bar one. You'll find it in Islam, you find it in Buddhism, you'll find it in Hinduism. You'll find it everywhere. But you won't find karma in biblical Christianity. It's not there. And in fact, this is one of the biggest distinctions between all the other religions and the Word of God. And I've said this before from this platform, and I absolutely believe that, that God has preserved biblical Christianity as the only one that doesn't have a root message of karma, doesn't have a root message of good works. In fact, the Bible message is we get what we don't deserve. It's contrary to everything else, and I think God has protected that. So that we, when we go into a world and say, well, you know, everybody's truth is their own truth. And, you you know, all roads lead to heaven. No, they don't. This stands alone. Stands alone. But often Christians get confused between karma and reaping and sowing as a principle. And they get the two mingled. Because the Bible often speaks of reaping and sowing. Let me read you a few references of this. This is from Job chapter number 4 and verse 8. It says, Even as I have seen, they that play iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Psalm 126 verse 5 says, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Hosea 10 12 says, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord. Galatians 6 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So throughout history, People have planted seeds and as a natural consequence they have reaped what they've sown or reaped whatever seed was planted. This is the natural law of consequence and action. It is not a mystical, magical law of karma. The plants don't grow because of some uh, universal magic karma. They grow because God designed them and created them and put them in a world of order. So in this way, when we think about sowing and reaping, it's really that consequences have actions. Or actions have consequences, that's better. What do I mean by this? I mean that we'll, we'll reap what we sow. Example. If we give our lives over to liquor, like I mean heavy drinking, don't be surprised when the liver packs in. If we give ourselves over to heavy smoking, don't be surprised when the lungs pack in. Spiritually, we go a little further. If you reap sinful behavior, don't be surprised when you show the consequences of that sinful behavior. This is not karma. This is just consequences for actions. There's a big difference. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if we reap sin and we do because we're sinners from birth, the consequences of that is what? It's this death, separation from God. So karma is this mystical, magical force of, you know, good people get good things and bad people get bad things. Is not the same as the biblical concept of sowing and reaping. And as far as sowing and reaping goes, tonight we get to the pinnacle of a man who has sowed these seeds and now he's put himself up against God. He stood against God's people, and by doing that he stand against God. And he's now going to reap what he sowed in the chapters that we've read before. For Haman it really is a case of what a difference a day makes and his consequences. Of his actions are catching up with him. And there's a tra- absolute r- role reversal, and we're going to see that tonight as we get through. But again, this is not karma. This is reaping what you've sown. And this man, Wicked Haman, is going to reap what he's sown. So let's get into the text. Let's have a look through it. And we'll pick up in verses 1 to 4. Where we see that the plan is repeated. So this is Esther chapter seven, verse number one. And the word of God says this. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. Now we know the king is a is, is 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 a banquet king. He loves it. So here he is, he's come with Esther, verse two. And the king said unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine. So he's he's into it a little bit. He's committed. He's built into it. He's been on the pop, as they say. What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. Does this sound familiar? He's been here before. This man gets a drink in him and he starts to let his mouth run away with him. And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther, the queen, answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, And if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold. I and my people to be destroyed, to be slain and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy would not countervail the king's damage. So here are the plan, the plan of Haman is repeated and Esther is here at this point now as we've we've, we've seen through this the Esther has had opportunity but she's held back but now is the time now she's going for it remember we talked about how she spent three days and three nights seeking the Lord I absolutely believe the Lord give her the wisdom and the leading and the guidance to not go all in to just wait to bide her time and as she bides her time God is doing all of these things in the background bringing it all together why because he's a sovereign god never forget that church that you may not see the threads but God does and he's in it sometimes we can't see it until we look back and go my goodness how did i not see God in that but he's there and he's moving And he's moving amongst his people. So here, Esther goes in. And notice what she says in verse number 2. When she's asked, sorry, verse 3. She's asked by uh, King Azores, King Xerxes. What what can I give you? What can I do to show off my great love for you, Esther? Verse 3. The queen answered and said. And notice how she goes about this. If I have found favor in thy sight. Now, she knows protocol. She's wise. She's carefully chosen her words so that she's not presumptuous before the king, that she's not placing herself in any, any aspect of, of danger here. She's coming to him in the right way. She's appealing to the king's benevolent nature. She knows what she's doing. I want you to, I want you to contrast that with how Haman approached the king when the king said, what should be done for the man? That's the, and he just blurted it out. There was no thought. He didn't get the context. Here, Esther is absolutely uh, uh, being wise in what she's saying and doing. If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, if it please the king, let it be given me at my petition. So she, she appeals to the king's pride, whatever you want to call it, but she plays the game perfectly. This is wisdom. She's not infuriating them. She's going about this the right way, the proper protocol. Remember, Esther was one who had found favor, and now she asks for favor. Beautiful parallels in the book. So she's trusting the Lord. She's all in here. This is the plan coming to the peak. Now, I want you to understand, she's still putting her life on the line here. You know, this is no light thing to come before the king this still takes immense courage to do what she's about to do. But she's doing it the right way. And I think there's a lesson that we learned there for us. That whatever we do, we do it the right way. And sometimes, it's not always our way. But we have to get wisdom from the Lord. And that's what she's doing. So she's coming the right way. She's saying the right things. But she's not watering down the message that she's about to deliver. That's important. So yes, she said the right things to get her in the right place at the right time. But when the message comes, it comes straight and clear. There's no doubt about it. So she goes straight to the king. Appealing to the favor that the kings give her. And then talks about how her life's in danger in verse number 4. She says, for we are sold. I and my people to be destroyed. Now, she's just said to the king, if I've found favor in your sin. So she's appealing to her relationship with the king. And then she goes on to say that I'm going to be destroyed. She doesn't go all guns blazing and and start going into the injustice of it all. This is clever. Because now she's playing the king off against the king. She's going to say entrapment and his wisdom. She's brought him in. She said, you know, if you you, uh, have feelings for me, if you have affections for me, if I'm useful to you, if I please you, then guess what? If this plot goes through, I ain't going to be here anymore. So she's appealing to the king's commitment to his best interests, his pride. She said if it wasn't important, she wouldn't have bothered if it was just simply she'd been sold as a slave she says i'd have held my tongue but this is life and death and this is esther's pinnacle really this is the moment this is this is it for her this is her time this is what god has raised her up for. This is what God has allowed her to come into the king's court, be part of the harem, to go through that great uh, beauty banquet, to be lifted up to that position for such a time as this. And it's took time and it's took patience in Esther's part. But this is the moment. Now she lays it absolutely all on the line. You know, people in the court would have been aware. But now the king, and again, kings of that time, they're disconnected from the thought that's going out outside those walls, outside his inner sanctum. You remember those kings, although they claimed that they had deity like power, they all lived in fear, full of paranoia, with people trying to bump them off here, there, and everywhere. So they lived a very isolated life. And now this king's being made aware of the desperation of the situation. Verse four for we are sold. I and my people to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. Esther has weighed her life in the balance. And she's sacrificed, she's put herself in the firing line. And at this point, at this moment, this is going to go one of two ways for this woman. But she's trusted God. Remember, I said to you that our safety doesn't depend on our distance from danger. Our safety, I want you to hear this, depends on our closeness to God. So at this point in this woman's life, Many would look at this and think, that is her. She's on the parapet. She's on the cliff edge. Her life is in danger. She's in terrible trouble. But actually, her life was never safer. Why? Because she's in the will of God, at the center of this storm, exactly where God wanted her to be. Esther's faith is on full display here. And it speaks volumes to me, it echoes through the ages. And it should do for us. As we look at it and think, I wonder what we would do. I wonder if we'd have the boldness and the courage. I can tell you this. If we trust God, he'll give us the boldness and courage to do whatever he wants us to do. End of. I believe that with all my heart and all my soul. The problem is not with God. Unfortunately, the problem is with us and our trust. All of us. So Esther's an example. An example of a woman who has um, put herself on the line, She stepped forward, she's come out of her comfort zone, She stepped forward, trusting the Lord for such a time as this. And she gets before the king and she repeats the plan to him, we are to be sold. So the plan is repeated. Then in verse 5 to 8, we're going to see that the plotter is revealed. Let's read verse 5, Esther 7. Then the king, Azarias, answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? Now, this points out how clueless this king really is. He's not deity, the man's a doofus. He's no idea, he's no care. At this point he's had a drink in him and he's like I'm a king I want to show off what can I do for you oh king if I've found favour of course you have Esther what is it what do you want me to do I'm going to be killed who's going to kill you like where has he been he's been in there Haman's come to him with this man's an idiot verse 5 he says, who is it? Now, this, is, this again, he doesn't understand how Esther's maneuvered him into this, but that's just what's going on. The strategy that's uh, coming uh, along here is, is phenomenal. Verse 6, And Esther said, The adversary, the enemy, is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. So Haman is present here because this is the banquet, remember, that the two of them have been invited to and you can think about Haman like let's, let's stop let's pause let's 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 insert ourselves between verse 5 and verse 6 because i tell you who does know the king is you know the king you know he slept since then he doesn't know what's going on but Haman who's in the corner of this narrative he knows does he not what's he thinking Oh. <laughs> oh. Uh oh. What's she gonna say? master comes out, names it, shames it. it, says, Wicked Haman. If you're in the numerology, if you know what I mean by that, Wicked Haman in the Hebrew, six six, six. This man's a picture of the Antichrist. Comes out of nowhere, goes for God's people and disappears as quick as he appears. We're going to see that. We see that in the book of Revelation. But Esther doesn't hide. She doesn't, you know, go around the corner for a shortcut. She comes out with it clear. The enemy is this wicked Haman. Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. So Haman now, he's he's in a place where, you know, things are going to go one or two ways for me here. Verse 7, And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden. What's the king do? little time out. Rises in his rage. Now, we could be quick to think that the king has done a disappearing act because he's afraid of acting impulsively. But... The truth is, we would do him 40 months credit to say that. I think closer to the truth is that he doesn't want to compose himself so that he can make a wise decision. He has simply realized that he has a problem. (laughs) What's his problem? He has a dilemma. Who was the one who gave Haman the ring, the royal ring, to seal this very decree? King Dufus. It was him. So as much as he would like to revoke it, because now he's actually thought about it, he's got a little bit of context. I mean, I've, I've said this before, but if Esther does anything for us, is get the context of the situation before you agree to anything. Is it the law and the maids of the Persians? How can he revoke this now without losing faith? So no doubt the king is out there on the veranda and uh, gone out to the garden. He's like, what what should I do? What should I do? Meanwhile, back back in the scene, like talk about an awkward silence, right? Because there's three people at this banquet. Now there may be servants in the background and stuff, but not permitted to speak. But there's three people at this banquet. The king has just gone out saying, Esther has just told the king that Haman wants to kill her. Haman's sitting there looking at the queen that has just told the king that he wants to kill her. <coughs> Awkward silence, right? So now they're thinking, what do we do? Well, Haman's like, what do, what to do? Let's read on. Second part of verse 7. And Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the king. For he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. So Haman knows these kings have a way of wriggling out of things. <laughs> Politicians can't be trusted. They'll find loopholes. He knows that the king's not happy with him. He's afraid for his life. And in, in the haste the of these things, he does the only thing that comes to his mind at the time that he flings himself, literally flings himself at Esther. He pleads for his life. He makes requests for his life. Verse 8. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the palace of the banquet of wine and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. So think of the scene again. This loser Haman knows he's in trouble. The queen Resting on on, 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 um, some form of bed or some form of uh, chair, lounge chair. And Haman literally is pleading with her. The king comes in and straight away he knows this is the way out. He knows this is the way out. Haman is doing his best to appeal to the nature of the queen. He's pleading for his life. The king comes back and says, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's fear. Here it goes. The king comes in. He sees what's going on, and he turns it to his advantage. Haman, pleading for his life, the king uses it and Haman can't say that the king's lying because he's going to die if he does that. So he's in trouble now. He's backed into a corner. And it's significant that there's a phrase there as uh, talks about uh, S, uh, Haman. It says, Haman was fallen upon the bed. That phrase, falling, um, pictures this truth that was prophesied was told really to Haman if you remember in chapter number uh, five there or chapter six I can't quite remember chapter six it was where all um, Haman's cheerleaders if you remember he comes back to the house with his tail between his legs and he comes back to his cheerleaders and rather than them saying yes you're going to be elevated what do they say you're going to fall you're going to fall Excuse me. Chapter six, verse thirteen. It is if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. What do we get? We get the culmination of that truth here in verse number eight, where um, Haman has fallen before the queen. is in desperation. He has fallen to uh, appeal to the Jew. save his life Haman's fall now is complete there's poetic justice in this if you like reaping what he's sown one commentator observes ironically the one who wanted to kill a Jew for not falling down before him so Mordecai member wouldn't bow was ultimately executed on a charge of falling down inappropriately before a Jew. God was in this. God was in this. So the plan was repeated, the plotter was revealed, and then finally, with Haman in trouble, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, nowhere to go, this leads me to one of my favorite lines of alliteration that I've wrote This year, and I mean that, it made me chuckle. The places are reversed. Look at verse 9. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold, also the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified there's a saying in the book of numbers i'm sure you know it be sure your sin will find you out proverbs chapter 1 verse 31 says of the wicked therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices haman is certainly eating more food than he bargained for he ate the fruit of his own way Proverbs 26 verse 27 says, whosoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Remember we talked about Haman and his bitterness? How did he couldn't get past the fact that all those years ago there was some tribal stuff going on with his ancestors, with Agag, if you remember. And how he had a bitterness for the Jew. And you remember how I told you that he had reached the top. He was, you know, second in command of the king. So everything was going well for him. But yet, this one thing, this one man, Mordecai, he couldn't get him out. And that bitterness had built up. Now he's reaping what he's sown. He's sown seeds of bitterness, and now he's reaping a harvest. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And there's a lesson for us tonight, I believe, in this. You may never have hurt someone like Haman did. But who hasn't plotted revenge at times? Let's be honest. For those that have wronged us, hurt us, harmed us. If we're honest, we'll say there's been times where we have plotted people's downfall. Maybe that's just maybe that's just me. But if we're honest, we get a little bitter about it. It sits in there, and we let it build. The Bible says if you dig a pit for someone else, you're going to be the one that's going to fall into it. What does it mean? It's going to hurt you more than it hurts them. And the thing is that God will balance the scales. God will take care of injustice. That's a biblical doctrine. We see it throughout Scripture. Let me read you a few references And I want to read these because we do live in a world of injustice. We do live in a world where people hurt and harm and do damage. We do live in a world where the wicked seem to prosper at times. And when we see this stuff and when we experience this stuff, we have to remember biblical doctrines and this doctrine is ever important That God is sovereign and nothing goes unseen. God is a God of holy and righteous justice. And he will balance the books. Nobody gets away with it when God's involved. Ezekiel 25 verse 17. Now this has been polluted from a movie, but this is the word of God. And I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious rebukes. And they will know that I am the Lord when I shall lay my vengeance upon them. Of course, Old Testament context, but still the truth. Romans 12, verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Romans 13, verse 4. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth uh, evil. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth to me. Repetition of Ezekiel. I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. And then finally, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. But the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. When it looks like the guilty, are going to get away with it. Remember That God is sovereign, that vengeance is his, and he will, not maybe, not might, he will repay. That nobody gets away with it. They all have to stand before God and pay for their actions or sins, unless they're saved and under the blood. They've experienced that glorious application, and then... God has placed all that punishment upon Jesus and they can go free. You know, I often see people that on the news when they commit tremendous atrocities those that go into the schools with the semi-automatic machine guns and they you know, just go for it. And then usually what happens is they either get shot by the police or a lot of the times they'll shoot themselves so they don't have to face the consequences of their actions. Biblically, there's no escaping God. You can put a gun to your head and blow your brains out, you'll still stand before the living God one day and give an account. So, Christian, what is that to do for us? What are we to do when we look at Esther and we see that God is there and he's sovereign and those that um, sow um, will reap is we leave it to God. We let it go and we leave it to god it's not our job to fix the world it's our job to preach the gospel knowing that the gospel can come in change hearts and change lives but ultimately outside of that each one will give an account nobody escapes how do i get up in the morning and look at the news because being a christian's hard because your eyes are opened. And you now see the world for what it is, and you see the depravity, you see the evil, you see the wickedness. I get up in the morning, and I look at it, and my heart sinks until I remember God is sovereign. He will repay. And this is the psalmist in Psalm 73. You know, Psalm 73, for the psalmist just goes through this. And he's like, what is going on? Verse 16 of Psalm 73. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely they did set them in slippery places. They cast them down in destruction. How they are brought into desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. This is a good description of what's happened to Haman. This is a man that has reached the top and he thinks it's going all right and looks for a large portion that God's people are going to be exterminated. But God will never let that happen. And Haman is punished and the wicked will be punished. And it's important for us, I think, to remember that. Because the world can't drag you down. People can drag you down. Hurts and harms can drag you down. Bitterness can drag you down. But remember the end. For those that don't know the Lord Jesus, a savior, face him as judge, jury, and executioner. And I think as we live our lives in this world, And the Bible tells us, you know, I can't quote it any other way, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, the Lord's coming. But the world's not going to get better before He comes. It's going to get worse. So, as we live in the already and not yet, in between, as Christians in this world, I think it's important that we need to keep the end in view. We have to keep the big picture, a little continuation from this morning. Listen to the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this in his book, Faith on Trial. He says, The importance of the end is something which is constantly emphasized in our Bible. Our Lord has put it once and forever in the Sermon on the Mount. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for the wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrows the way which leadeth to life and there are few there be that find it. You see what he's saying? Look at the broad way. How marvelous it seems. You can go with the crowd. You can do what everybody else is doing. They're all smiling and joking. Wide and broad are the gate and the way. What is the matter with them? They do not look at the end. Wide is the gate. And broad is the way that leads to destruction. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way. But that end, it leads to life. The end of one is destruction of the other life. The trouble in life today is that people are only looking at the beginning. The story of Haman gives us this picture of what awaits all those that oppose him. Haman is a type, he's a picture of the Antichrist is a picture of the enemy of God. And just as the Antichrist's end is determined, so are the enemies of God's ends determined. But we do well to take our eyes off the here and now and think about the big picture. Think about what lies ahead for those that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Be reminded of that the next time you get tempted to envy what other people have. Be tempted of that when, you, or be reminded of that when you're tempted to allow bitterness to seek into your heart because of what's happened to you in this life. Be reminded of the end of those that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Haman should do for us. If Haman's good for anything, he's good for that reminder. That God always wins. He's good for that reminder that God is above man and beyond man and uncontainable by man. He's a good reminder that God has promises for his people. And no scheme of man, no matter how wily or crafty it is, will ever trump the plans and purposes and promises of God. He's sovereign, he's above all, he's beyond all, and he is in all. For Haman, what a difference a day makes. For us, as we keep the end in view, we have to think about the day of the Lord, his return, and what a difference that will make for each and every enemy of God. Here's my plea. Do not go against God because God will win. Past your arguments, past your thoughts, past your cleverness, whatever it is, God will win. What a difference it day makes for this man, Haman. But what a difference it day makes for the people of God who have gone from threat to life to the great joy of their salvation. Let's pray.